All right, church, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to the book of Exodus. We're going to finish at the end of chapter 1, and then we're going to pick back up uh, into chapter 2 and get through half of it uh, this morning. Listen, I know that in a room this size, and even those that are watching online, uh, the, the odds are that some of you, statistically speaking, have been in situations in your life that if God didn't show up, that perhaps it would have led to your destruction or your great defeat. Like you've experienced God work on certain levels within your own marriage and with your home, or, or you've seen it in your parents' marriage, or, or maybe you've seen it at work or, or at school, where if God didn't come through one way or the other, then you were, you were doomed and, and you were headed straight for destruction. This past week, I read a familiar passage that many of you know this story of this, this scene and this episode in, in Moses' life. And, and the danger with texts like this is because they are so familiar to us, we can tend to dismiss them as if we have known and seen everything. For the past 17 years in my life, I've worked through a Bible reading plan called the McShane Reading Plan. And it takes you through all of Scripture within one year. So at least 17 times I've read this text. And for all 17 of those times prior to it, and, and not even being familiar with everything, almost every single time there was this sense of familiarity. But then this week, the Lord began to show a couple of different things and pieces and began to put some things together in sort of a broader story of, of what the narrative actually is. And, and I want you to see in this moment how God, he delivers and he rescues his children often at times when they are helpless to do anything themselves. In fact, I would also go a step further and to say that, that it is only when we become so helpless and become like Moses in this moment that God has his, his most trying and, and he has his most pervasive ways of helping. And so let's pick up where we left off last week, beginning in verse 22 of chapter one, where it says this, then Pharaoh commanded all of his people Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. So a couple of things. One, we are reminded today of this genocidal, atrocious, evil order that this evil man had given to annihilate a subset of a population who demeaned them, he enslaved them for 430 years, and he took the lives of their firstborn sons and oftentimes human trafficked the daughters. They were just property. This is an evil man. Yet at the same time, even in his evilness and even in his wickedness, he was the most powerful man in the known world. That his very word, he could take your life for no rhyme or reason. He could do whatever he wants, and he often got away with doing whatever he wants. And then the story continues, and it says, Now a man from the house of Levi. And in the coming months, we're going to talk more about this house of Levi. But one of the things that I want to put together is that Levi came and he was the son of Jacob. And Levi was the third born son after Reuben and a guy named Simeon. Then comes Levi. And so these two people, they get together out of the house of Levi and they have a child. 
Now, we know this story, and we're familiar with it to a degree, and we know that Moses, in this moment, who is the child that is born, he actually has an older brother named Aaron, and then in just a few moments, entering into the scene, Moses' sister is going to watch him as he floats down the Nile River, making Moses the third-born child in this household. And most scholars would contend that what he's doing in that moment is he's trying to point together to the the, the irony that exists within the text and the richness that is often there when we find it, when we discover it. But I want to say this, this man, the house of Levi, and this woman who was a Levite woman, we know what their names are. If you scan ahead to Exodus chapter 6, verse 20, we are introduced to Moses and his mom. And I want to draw out some things about his mom's name in particular that I think are noteworthy. In Exodus 6, 20, it says that Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. Now, we live in a world and in a culture that demeans women, objectifies them, and puts them sort of down and beneath oftentimes, even in our very best efforts. And one of the interesting things that happens here in this moment where the Bible, I think, gives a greater dignity and even greater worth in this moment to Moses' mom is we are finally introduced in Exodus 6 into what her name was. And if you see that on the screen, you see that it's J.O. Kabed, Jochebed. And she has the distinction in this moment of being the very first person in Scripture with a name that includes the part of it, a portion of one of God's names. And we see that when we pull it apart on the screen, Jochebed, the first two words, Joe, uh, abbreviated form of the word Yahweh. We see this in names like Jonathan and and Joel and others that are named after the divine name. And this is the first moment in scripture where we see a person in particular, this woman being Moses's mom, who is given the divine name or part of that as being Yahweh, meaning Yahweh is glorious. My God is glorious. My God is great. My God is a provider. And verse three goes on and it says, when she could no longer hide him. She took for him a basket, and she made bulrushes, and she dabbed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it, and she placed it amongst the reeves by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So a couple of things are happening in this moment. Moses' mom, Jochebed, doesn't just take Moses, wrap him in a blanket, and toss him in the river, which she was instructed to do by Pharaoh. Instead, she makes this basket and she tries to waterproof the basket so it would float and so Moses wouldn't drown. And so in this act of trusting in the Lord, she's trusting that the Lord is going to provide for her son in this moment. And she's doing everything that she can in this moment because he's gotten so big, she can't hide him anymore from the Egyptians. They're going to find out and harm will come upon her. And so she is led in this way to go and she makes this basket. Now this word basket in the text, uh, we, we only see this word one other time throughout scripture. And we see it throughout Genesis chapter six, all the way through verse nine. And this word basket, it it reads from a Hebrew word that literally means the word ark. Do you know what happened in Genesis chapter six and seven and eight and nine? It's when God flooded the earth and he told Noah to build the ark. The same word 
one other time in this moment in Exodus versus all the other times in Genesis, and then we never see that Hebrew word again. Why would he do something like this? Why would she put him not in a, in a basket as we would see, but why would she put him in a little ark, if you will, a baby ark and float him down the river? Is because what the author is doing in this moment is he is foreshadowing the deliverance of the young little baby just as God saved and spared Noah and his family on the ark when he flooded the earth and then the waters receded and then he gives the rainbow as a promise to never do that again. What the author is doing in this moment is he's saying, I'm going to take care of this little child and I'm going to deliver him. You're going to take him and put him in this little basket and you're going to put him in the water. And then notice it says in verse four that the sister stands at a distance to know what is to be done. And so you can imagine the scene as Jochebed puts baby Moses in the baby ark and she gently places him in the water and then off that little ark begins to float. Oh, by the way, uh, do we remember that where this little baby is floating is in a river called the Nile River. Ever heard of it? It's known as the largest river in the world. There's debate on whether the Amazon is or not, so don't send me an email about any of that. The Nile's the longest. And the Nile is a, is a dangerous river to be on. Many years ago, I had the privilege of actually going to the Nile and swimming in the Nile and whitewater rafting down the Nile. We were uh, in a place called Uganda, and we were there uh, exploring a partnership with an orphanage in a little town called Jinja, which sits right on uh, the cusp of Lake Victoria, which is where they would say the, the origin, if you will, of the Nile actually begins. And so we went about our, our business uh, doing all the things that we were supposed to do. In the last couple of days, we just had some time off. And so we decided and got the bright idea that we wanted to go whitewater rafting. And so me and about four or five other guys, we, we go up and pay our money and, and they tell us to get in and throw us a helmet. They're like, have you ever whitewater rafted before? Like, I don't know, I've never done this before, but I've got uh, one kid at home and my wife's seven, eight months pregnant. I'd like to go home and see them again. I said, that's fine. We're gonna do a tame section on the Nile River. And oh yeah, by the way, uh, when you rate whitewater rapids, a one would be like a still calm lake. A number six would be like, you go off that one and, and you die. Like going over Niagara Falls, you, you'll kill yourself. And he said, okay, well, by the way, uh, you're gonna go across several threes. Uh, you're gonna experience some fours, but oh yeah, by the way, there are two class five rapids that you're gonna go down on this little tame whitewater rafting trip that you're in. And oh yeah, by the way, you may see some hippos swimming around you. You may see some crocodiles and you may see a lot of other things. But we were like, hey, uh, I'm young. Uh, I've only, you know, only gonna live once and, and my boy, Ben Bolin was there with me and we were on the same boat the same day and there were about five other boats in front of us. And we do the twos and we do the threes and we do the fours thinking no big deal. And our boat just happened to be in the very back part of, of this whole little expedition thing that we were on. And we began to approach the class five rapid. And so what our guy does, he's sort of steering the boat. We're there to just do whatever instructions he says. We watch as five other boats go down this class five rapid and every single one of them flipped upside down. And every single one of them sort of thrashed in the water and guys were going underwater. You'd see them 30 seconds later, like a mile down the river. We don't know how they lived and how they survived. And I remember looking at Ben and the guys in our boat and I, I said the words, we are about to die. <laughs> it's over. 
And so we circle around one more time and we get all of our instructions right and we hit the, the rapid and, and our boat flies way up in the air. And then just as Pharaoh saved Moses from the Nile River, he saved me and Ben that day and our boat fell straight back down in the water and we were the only ones that didn't overturn. I asked Ben after the first service, did I tell that story right? He said, yeah, but you forgot one part. I said, what's that? He said, do you remember the, the rapid that we hit after that? I said, huh? He said, it was a class four that followed the five and all five boats made it down the class four and didn't overturn and then we were the only one that hit the four and flipped our boat. <laughs> and I said, that was the Lord like teaching us pride and honor and then humbling us back to the level that we deserved. And so here's Jacobin with her little baby. She's putting him in this river. This river is like 4,160 miles. It goes through 11 countries. It was worshiped in the eyes of the Egyptians. They, they thought it was a god. It would take life and, and it would give life. They, they worshiped this river and this river was dangerous. And here she is fashioning her little baby ark and, and trying to be as obedient as she could. But can you imagine the heartache for the moment as she is saying goodbye? And then the sister walks along the shore so as not to be picked out. And she keeps her eye on Moses for the entirety of this time not knowing what is going to happen, but also knowing about all the other little baby Hebrews who had already been drowned in the Nile River, whose lives had, had already been taken. It says in verse five, it says, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While the young woman walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and she sends her servant woman and she took the basket when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And then notice this, one of the most powerful women in the world, the daughter of the Pharaoh, who had ordered the genocide of the Hebrew babies, takes pity on him. And she said, this is one of the Hebrews' child, children. Then Moses' sister, in verse 7, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to come and to nurse the child? For you. Arguably, in this moment, what we have here is the most powerful man in the world that issues the death and destruction of all the babies. And then you have the second most powerful, at least person or woman, the daughter of the Pharaoh that is there. And she sees the Hebrew baby. And her culture was accustomed to not making and allowing the Hebrews to be human beings. They were less than ordinary people. And it says she hears the cries of this baby and she takes pity on him. And then in God's providence, Moses' sister comes up and says, shall I fetch you a Hebrew woman to come nurse this baby? Oh, by the way, I know whose child this is and goes and gets her mama and allows her mama to be the one that nurses her little baby. And the providence of God in that moment, the deliverer that God had been promising for 430 years, they lived in bondage as slaves to the Pharaoh, and now God had sent the one who would rescue them and who would redeem them. And Pharaoh's daughter says, go and get her, in verse 8. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages to do this. I'm going to pay you. Here's the irony. Out of Pharaoh's treasure, I'm going to pay you to be the mom to your son that you had. The irony in that moment 
I will pay you your wages to, to do the very thing you would have done for free and, and not occupy, to take this child away and give you your wages. So the woman took the child and she nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. And I want you to think for a moment about how remarkable it is what these three ladies just did. There was no more powerful army in the world than Pharaoh. There was no more powerful man that existed than Pharaoh. And yet in this moment, a loving, caring, nurturing mom defies the order at risk of her own life, at risk of her family's life. She defies the order, but when he gets so big that she can't hide him anymore, she builds him an ark and she puts him in there, all the while defying the orders of the king. And then this loving and caring and kind sibling of a sister watches gently and peacefully from the shore as eventually Pharaoh's daughter's servants see the basket and they collect the basket, caring for her brother all the while. And then how remarkable in this moment, even though she does not know the Lord our God, even though in the moment she herself could be in danger for adopting a Hebrew boy because there were men and astrologers that we know from history that were whispering in the ear of the Pharaoh that there is a prophecy that their God is going to raise up someone to deliver them from your hand. And so Pharaoh begins to sow seeds of discord and he begins to become harsher on the Hebrews. And yet here, the irony in this moment, they see this baby that's already released into the water to die and the Pharaoh's daughter takes him in and it just so happens that the man that would grow up, that would be educated by the Pharaoh, that would be fed at his table, given food, all the fine things, a roof over his head, no one would live better than Moses and the rest of the family in that moment that this was the man in God's providence that was going to rise up and was going to deliver his people out of 430 years of slavery. Too many things for that to be a coincidence. Too many movements in the narrative for this to be uh, just, just made up in this moment. Too many things for us to not be able to say, wow, look at how great our God is. Look at how he is working this plan behind the scenes and moving and he's doing things. Even when the Hebrews at this moment who had no idea about what Jochebed had done to, to build the ark for the little baby and to gently put him in the water, all the while all they thought was they were just still existing as slaves praying to their God, asking to be delivered. God, would you not hear me in the moment of my trial, in the midst of suffering, but all the while God is working a plan behind the scenes that they're unaware of, and God begins to raise Moses up in the court of the Pharaoh. It kind of reminds me of that old book that you had to read when you are in intermediate school. When you think about Moses' mom and dad trying to hide Moses and to be quiet when his house is searched, remember that book you had to read called The, the Diary of Anne Frank? Some of you hated it and loathed it and didn't like it. 
But it tells a remarkable story about a remarkable family that grew up in the Netherlands in 1941. They find themselves trapped by Hitler and and they're persecuted and they're Jewish. And and it tells the story because she's quite a prolific writer at the time, this young girl. And she writes these entries in her journal about what it was like to go hide in this place at her dad's office where he worked so that the Nazis wouldn't come take them. And unfortunately, if you know the story of Anne Frank, I'll go ahead and tell you the the end. Uh, Her family gets taken in and sent to concentration camps, a place called Auschwitz. And, and, and then she then is, is taken from her sister. They're moved to another one where eventually they die. And the only ones that survive in the midst of it is her father who then goes back and, and just so happens there's a copy of her diary there. And he, he publishes it in like 1947. It's been translated into 70 some odd languages. But it's the story of this book of this family who had to remain hidden. They couldn't sneeze and, and scratch their, their, their heads or their faces for fear of being taken in and ultimately being put to death. This is in so many different ways the story of Moses and and his life. But I know that many of us are familiar with this story and where I sort of want to land today as we conclude our time together is this question that sort of haunted me all week and wrestling with all day yesterday. What if you weren't Jochebed? And what if you weren't Moses? But what if you were one of the other Hebrew families? that God didn't rescue your son. You were one of the ones that was forced to, or or someone did, to force to put your son to death in the river. How do I deal with that, and how do I wrestle with those things? How do I wrestle with life when life doesn't go the way I want it to go? When a loved one passes away and God didn't save them? When things at work don't get resolved or there's issues in in my marriage or or with my kids or maybe between you and and your mom and dad, there's unresolved conflict and it feels like it's never going to resolve itself. What if God did not deliver you from those circumstances? What if you were like the rest of the Hebrews? Here's what I want to say to you this morning is this. We always live in the posture that God can do anything. He's able. Secondly, I think we always believe in the posture that God is willing to do the things that he's capable of and he can. But thirdly, and perhaps maybe most important, when he doesn't do what we know he can do, when he doesn't do what we know he might be willing or unwilling to do, we trust in him and and we still hope in him to say it a different way. We always believe God can. We expect that he will, but we trust when he doesn't. Because he's still worthy of our trust. I wish I could preach a message to you like I heard this past week from uh, someone that if you just believe hard, Try hard and work hard and put your trust in him. God will deliver you. And and the truth is, ultimately, God will always deliver us. But sometimes he doesn't deliver us from hardship this side of eternity. Sometimes life is hard. People we love, they, they pass on. And yet we live here still in this moment 
Where I think the posture is a lot like those Hebrews that did see the heartache and did see the loss of life as they were held hostage to the Pharaoh. We, we know that God is able to. We know that he can. And we believe that he's willing. But if he chooses in that moment not to, we still trust him. Because I think like Jochebed and I think like so many others, that their faith and our faith in God teaches us that God is bigger than our problems and he is better than any solution, any strategy, any strategic planning that you or I could come up with. He's always better than those things. I want to draw our attention to this last little phrase in verse 10. When she says, I named him Moses, why? Because I drew him out of the water. In theological circles, there's a terminology called effectual calling. And you may or may not be familiar with it, but here's essentially what it is. Effectual calling is this idea that all of us are called to proclaim the gospel, to share the gospel to men and to women, to black, to white, to Hispanic, to, to anyone and everyone that would listen. We share it because God is called to, to do it to everyone. But the second component of this is, is basically uh, summarized by God in his goodness and his kindness sort of wooing you to his side. And here's what I mean by that. When I was 16 years old, I sat in a church service like this in a, in a pew like that, and I watched my little baby brother of 14 years old get baptized. He came back from a student camp and he was talking about all these things that had changed in his life. And I'm like, I don't know what any of those things mean. But I remember sitting there in the pew, watching him in a baptistry like this. And I remember saying to myself, I need to do something different with my life. That he seems to have gotten his uh, on course and, and that I needed to do something different in my own life. And from that moment and watching that testimony, God sent me on this journey, if you will. And I began to ask questions. And I began to become super curious. And I was asking friends that I knew that, that go to church, hey, what book of the Bible should I, should I read? And, and, and one of my friends, I called her that night, said, what book should I read? She said, read the book of Mark. And I read the book of Mark and I called her back in 45 minutes. I said, okay, what do I read now? She said, you already read it all? I said, yeah, it's a short book, what else? She said, go, go start in Matthew and, and go through Luke. And within like a day or two, I'd read all the gospels. And, and they said, well, what do I do now? And, and they said, well, we'll start reading uh, in Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and, and go through the book and, and just keep reading and just keep being curious. And then eventually over the course of several months, I wasn't even satisfied with that. I found someone in a church to, to disciple me that would just spend time with me, let me ask all kinds of, of crazy questions. And you see, what was happening in that moment was God was drawing me into himself. He was drawing me to his side. And since that day at 17 years old, my curiosity has not been satisfied. Not that I'm not satisfied in who he is, I'm not satisfied in being used by God. And I'm not satisfied and in, 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 in I want to stop growing in God and becoming who it is that he wants me to become. You see, oftentimes we experience the harsh realities of the Pharaohs in this world and the Nile rivers in this world so that God can make us into something that we could not become otherwise and without the hardship. 
So we trust him. This morning, I simply ask you, who and what are you trusting? Pray with me. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have forgiveness of sins, that you have redeemed us as your people, and that you call us to come alongside you. Jesus tells us in John 6 that we don't come to the Father unless he gives permission to, draws us to. So Father, I pray this morning that you would draw your people to your side. We would confess our sins, repent of them, and we trust you. Father, I pray for anyone in this room that's hurting today and experiencing heartache and turmoil, sickness, loss. I pray, Father, that you would remind them gently and kindly that you can do anything, that you are able, that you are willing. We expect those things. But Father, if you don't answer that prayer in their time and in their way, Father, I pray that you would remind them to trust you and to believe you. So Father, we thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. And so Father, can we rest in that truth this morning? We pray in Christ's name, amen.